0: We are Black Food Folks. We are Black Food Folks. Welcome to our very first episode of Black Desserts. My name is Therese Nelson, and I'll be your host this season as we converse with 13 supremely talented pastry chefs and dessert artists. Our first episode is an important one. It's all about origin story, but we give space for our guests to tell their stories their upbringings, the influences that shaped their pastry pursuits, and how they've successfully molded their passion into careers. We're first chatting with Erica Dupree. Erica's a veteran pastry chef, the chocolatier, and the owner of Florida-based chocolate boutique, Simply Erica. Next, we talk with a virtual sous chef, and owner of the restaurant group behind Austin's Emmer and Rye, chef Tavelle Bristol-Joseph. Tavell talks to us about his complicated childhood in Guyana, finding place in the U.S., and how he used bacon as a tool for bonding as a child. And then we're in New York City with the young and energetic chef, Kamari Mick, talking donuts, the power of Instagram, how she used COVID-19 as a time to reinvent her creativity and stay connected with the work that matters to her. Welcome to Black Desserts.
1: My name is Erica Dupree Klein. I have been a pastry chef for 32 years and a chocolatier for 15 years.
0: I feel like we have to start really at your beginning because your upbringing informs so much of your work. What it was like growing up, where you grew up, and lead into when it became apparent to you that, that pastry was going to be your, your life?
1: Well... I grew up on a small farm in Southern Illinois called Thames, Illinois. It's a small little town, 800 people. We had 25 acres in the back of us and then five acres along the street. And I spent every day with my grandmother besides my mom. And I was the only child for 13 years. So grandma started dinner, Sunday dinner on Thursday nights. And we had chickens, we had cows, we had pigs, we had fresh garden. Um, I was always getting in trouble eating out of the garden because she said it was dirty. And I was just, I was bad because <laughs> I, I just wanted freshness. I just wanted to eat out of the backyard. And then grandma would make, start making desserts for Sunday dinner. And I was just like, man, I want to lick the bowl. This was about four years old, five years old. I was in kindergarten and grandma said, well, if you want to lick the bowl, you got to help me. Yeah. You know, so she taught me how to bake from scratch at five years old. And I thought it was the most amazing thing because everybody loved grandma and they loved her food. And when people would eat her food, their faces would change. This expression on their face was amazing. And I wanted that same feeling. And who at five years old would understand that, you know? But I did. And plus, I wanted to lick the bowl. That was like one <laughs> of the major things, you know? That was for almost 10 years of my life. That was amazing that I, I could spend with my grandmother, who was practiced. she was my best friend her love was in her hands and it flowed through her hands and it went into her food. And I, I, that's who I wanted to be when I grew up at 10 years old, I I started my first business. I was, and I was selling my cakes and my little mini, my little mini cookies to my school teachers. And my first business was named Erica's treats. I, to this day I still have the little rubber stamp that I would stamp on the receipt and on the little stickers Um, Come on,
0: professional. Come on, on, (laughs) branding.
1: Girl, my mother, she has her, she has her, her degree in art. So everything was about packaging and the way it looked, you know. And and so from that point on, at twelve years old, she put me in, in Wilton cake decorating classes, and then I started doing birthday cakes and wedding cakes, and you know, it just evolved from there. And I knew what I wanted to do. It had to involve sugar, butter deliciousness and the emotions that you see on people's faces when you eat that food. I was I was very lucky to be living in Detroit during the time of Detroit where it was a foodie town, which is still is a foodie town to this day. But I'm talking about back in 1988 through 1995, They had quite a few master chefs up there. I worked for, I went to culinary school in the area. There's three top culinary schools that, but they were community colleges. And I don't knock that at all because those teachers were serious. They were just as serious as any major culinary school that, you know, with big, big names or whatever. But my teachers were amazing. They saw my passion. They let me run with it. They pushed me even harder. And for me, I was probably one of the only out of 25 students, there was probably five black students.
0: Mm, right? In a city as, a city as black as Detroit.
1: Right. But I, I had such um, great instructors and even from the rival cu- um, culinary community college school craft because I went to OCC and then there was school craft. And if you mention either one of those to people that know Detroit, they would be like, oh, that's awesome. You know, but I was able to go back and forth as in work under master chefs. I worked under two master pastry chefs and one master chef once I got out Mm -hmm. of school. And the master chef, savory chef was Chef Milo's. He was the very first master chef in the United States. I worked under him at his restaurant, The Golden Mushroom which was the top restaurant in the city and also in the country. And it was amazing for me to be able to have that that experience.
0: I also want to lift up community colleges. Like you have, I mean, over your work, over your career, I know in Jacksonville specifically, but just in your career, you've always lifted back, like giving back to community colleges. The dexterity yeah. of community colleges is that you get to be hyper-local and get to be beholden to the culinary communities that you serve. And I I think we dismiss community colleges in a way that is short-sighted because you're talking about these spaces where you have disproportionately hungry and invested young people. So I wonder if, if the ACF was part of your life in those early days. So for me, you know, everyone's
1: journey, culinary journey is different and the way that even though you could be 35 years old and just now starting culinary, you're still, you're a kid, you're starting over, you know, and you're growing into this culture, this environment, this family, this amazing journey. And my journey was not part of the ACF only because I was working three jobs and putting myself through school. I didn't have that kind of time. And it, school was very demanding, and so were my jobs. My very first job was Little Caesars, and that was like my first semester of culinary school, and I got fired because I was telling the ma- the manager that he was doing things the wrong way, <laughs> you know? So because I was learning these things in school, and he wasn't—I was like, oh, well, that's not proper, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I had a lot of questions, but I needed my questions to be answered through— I learned a lot through visual and hands-on. At that time, you know, it was difficult for me because I needed to really make do it hands-on. So, like, whatever that I was reading, I would be downstairs in the kitchen in my at my at my house, at my parents' house, making everything because I needed to learn that procedure so that I could rock it when it went to school.
0: So you're talking about the late 80s into the early 90s. The landscape and food is shifting, right? Like we're talking about a time where television is starting to really sort of become an interesting place for food, but it was, you had to seek it out. Um, you're talking about, uh, you know, you you're, to your point, uh, an embarrassment of riches with reference to master chefs, like high level culinary arts really sort of becoming part of the mainstream conversation. What are you thinking as you're training and you sort of are experiencing multiple jobs and working under amazing chefs, you know, it's going to be pastry related, but what are you thinking? What's next? The possibilities for like a professional life.
1: I went into culinary school at 17 and uh, I came out at 19. I was very naive, but very, very talented. But I was at a point which you know who I am today. I'm that same I was that same person, but young 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 minded I had no fear to go and um, having three jobs, but then trying to sneak in time to find if I could go work under another chef, I would wash his dishes so then I could be in the same room with him That that I was hungry. that's who Erica was at eighteen nineteen. 20 years old, very, very hungry. I became um, executive pastry chef at 22. And because I was hungry, I don't see that hunger in some people nowadays like how it was back in the day. I would say, okay, well, I'm getting off work. I'm just now getting off work at 10 o'clock. But I, I can make it down to the Whitney in 20 minutes and still see the last plates go out. And the Whitney house was amazing. And if I could be down there and be a part of that, I did it. And I might not have had just enough gas to get there and back home, but I figured it out. You know, it was that hunger. And I was hungry at 18, 19, and 20 years old. That's That's who I was at that time.
0: I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about mentorship and representation. A lot of your career has been about amplifying the lack of diversity in our industry and trying to bridge the gap for young chefs as a direct mentor. But there's something profound about the environment you came up in where you're finding great mentors that happen to be white men. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your personal experience being mentored as a young chef.
1: I'll say this um, I was in an environment that was, I was blessed to be in the environment that I was in. I met uh, some amazing people. And I said, okay, and it didn't matter what color they were because I didn't know that there was supposed to be a difference in color at that time, only because I grew up in, in the part of Detroit that I grew up in was an all-white neighborhood. The culinary school I went to was an all-white neighborhood. At that time, my boyfriend was white. He He was Jewish. So my culture at that time, it had nothing to do with being a black girl except for when it made it obvious that I would walk into that kitchen. But I was quite blessed to be that I was talented enough to get in the, in the places that I was. And I, I, con- I just continued to seek it. Well, they see me this way, then I'm going to be even better each time, each time. And so each time that I got better, the next person that came along as a mentor, they weren't my bosses after a while. They became like Chef Milo's became my papa. And I would go to work an hour early so I could go down and cut onions with him and listen to his stories and make French onion soup. So that for me, that I was quite blessed to have that in me. The Lord blessed me to say, "Okay, catch that and catch that favor and catch that favor. And then after a while, it was just a regular thing to be brown and the only brown person there. I think there was only one other black girl, Bettina in my culinary class, pastry class, and she quit. So then I was just like, um, I don't have a choice of quitting because I already know this is my life, you know? And so when you have that in you, you you just keep functioning. So then, I mean, I didn't realize that, wow, it was amazing to be in a kitchen with all Black people until 2004. In 1998, I was in the Peabody Hotel, and I was running their pastry kitchen as the pastry supervisor with no executive pastry chef or sous chef. And there was two other pastry cooks in there, and I was their supervisor, and they hated me because I was a black woman. And I had mm. to build my the trust. So when I became the assistant pastry chef of the Peabody Hotel, uh, but I was still under a white pastry chef. And then when he left, and he was French, when he left, I was promoted to pastry chef. And I had to still trust, you know? And by then, he, once he left, I had a crew of 19, and five of my pastry cooks were black. They didn't understand to have a, a black woman as their boss. It took about, I don't know, 18 months to gain, really gain their trust and say, I'm here for you. Yeah. And then and then from then, I went into Ebony Magazine and Black um, Enterprise Magazine. And Ebony flew me to New York. And I walked into a kitchen with nothing but Black people. And I from that point on, I knew that something was different. And I had to change my life. And I, from that point, I did.
0: Absolutely. So, all right. I want to sort of pivot to chocolate. This is like 2007, eight, nine. This is when that spark is happening. You are figuring out what that's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Then Top Chef happens. And then you end up at Great Cliff. Is Great Cliff your first experience in the chocolate business primarily? It
1: was my first chocolate factory to my my specs. I had full reign, it was a dream. It was very, very hectic, very um, not, it was not easy to be in a different country. And again, a different, it was, I was in a black country hiring people who had no idea about chocolate and they were black. And except for the owners were Italian. And they found a, a new, a whole new respect for our culture. I found a whole new respect for um, the love of chocolate. And then I found, I fell in love with the Caribbean. That was amazing in itself. So then I I put two and two together, as in, of course, you know, as we already spoke on, um, community colleges. Well, they had a culinary school, a community college culinary school down there. And I said, I had to share. And I shared everything I possibly could with them of myself. And I, I gave Nassau Bahamas is all that I could give from chocolate to being a black chef where I was lead. Usually they didn't have that in the Caribbean. You don't have that. You did not have that at that time. They would bring in European chefs to lead Caribbean restaurants and uh, hotels. And that was, un- and, and this was the biggest step for Greycliff to bring a black woman to make chocolate for their company.
0: I remember that. I remember being so proud of you. If you talk through Great Cliffs to Simply Erica, that's a lot. But it, it,
1: it is a lot. And but it was it's it's all about that journey, right? I fell in love, love, and opened my own blue chocolate in Tortola, British Virgin Islands, making bean to bar chocolate, um, running Caribbean Cafe and a beach restaurant, and it was amazing. I was in a in the thick of it. And it was great. I could walk through the mountains of Tortola and find a patch of cocoa trees um, and eat the pulp off the tree. That's something no one can ever take away from you. You know, all these beautiful experiences. Like
0: like a side note, like the first taste of like... The pulse mm-hmm. around chocolate was used in your chocolate, your chocolate lab <laughs> in this gorgeous place. I cannot believe that I had never experienced that taste before, yeah. and to have yeah. this to you to be in this place and like to to be creating this park that was that had terroir and had sense of like geography to it.
1: I can't say this enough. It comes full circle. Chocolate yeah. is our history. Chocolate is in our history mm. more than anyone ever could imagine. You could go through Jamaica or uh, throughout the Caribbean or even Africa, and you know that people are drinking chocolate tea on a daily basis. Why we look so good? Because we have cocoa butter flowing through our, our veins, our, our blood, um, because of chocolate. And I, I don't even think we appreciate chocolate enough. It's our history. It's our story. It's nobody else's story. As it evolved from Greycliff to Blue Chocolate Tortola, now into Jacksonville, um, Simply Erica, that's all it is, Simply Erica. I put my life of telling a story of my culinary history in a box and my true love, which is chocolate. And that is where it, it is right now, how it's developing. It's developing from a chocolate line to a baking, bakery product line, to um, home goods line, to a lifestyle line. And that's what Simply Erica is. I am about to put my whole life journey into Simply Erica. As I like to say again, a day is never good without chocolate.
0: We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. another origin story. Talenti Gelato and Cebeto began in Buenos Aires where founder Josh Hochschuler moved to the city and quickly fell in love with the smooth flavorful Argentinian style of this frozen dessert. The taste, the texture, the consistency, and even the experience of gathering to talk about it. So he signed up for an apprenticeship at a local holiday, learned the artful craft of traditional gelato making before bringing the old-world flavor back home to the U.S. And now it's even easier to enjoy the 50-plus flavors of Talenti in your home. Visit TalentiGelato.com for store locations and delivery partners to enjoy the rich tradition of gelato done right. Next, we're talking with the brilliant executive pastry chef of the Emma and Rye Restaurant Group, Chef Tavell Bristol-Joseph. Tavell's so story is fascinating. He immigrated from Guyana, had a story career all over the country. He started in with some friends and have, has really used the platform, used the restaurant to model what leadership and ethical and equitable restaurant models could look like. He got honored as Food & Wine's Best New Chef, which was the first Four Pastry Chef, and rightfully so because he's using his visibility and his platform to advocate for young people, especially young Black people, all over the city of Austin. So I'm so excited to, to share his conversation with you.
2: My name is Tavelle Bristol-Joseph. I am the pastry chef and partner here in Austin, uh, we have five restaurants. We have Emmer and Rye, TLV, Hestia, Calimocho, and the Henbit.
0: I would love if you could talk a little bit about growing up in Guyana.
2: All right. Well, I, you know, growing up in Guyana, I, you know, moved around a lot. Most of my family was in America. My, I was living with, like, my father's side of the family, friends of family. And um, the last place I ended up before I left it was my, my aunt's house, which was technically was just my grandmother's, uh, my great-grandmother's best childhood best friend. Uh, she had this thing of, like, she always had pound cake um and some type of fruit drink in the refrigerator. And she would have pound cake in the middle of her table. That was like the thing. Like if anyone comes over, you need to have something to offer them. So, you know, so she's always baking and cooking while I was in the house. And I would, you know, try to help out or I I was actually she was like, make me help her out any chance she get. So after baking, you know, with her, it was it was something fun. And uh you know, I have a sweet tooth also. So it was great. I would get a chance to taste all these different cookies and pound cakes and stuff, cheese roll. And when it came to the last two years of my high school, you had to kind of pick your career fields, uh, because there's not that many colleges in Guyana. So you what the government did was they created like, the last two years of your high school, you would learn a trade so you can go right into the work field and you don't necessarily need to have a college education. So they developed these classes like home economics, communications, technical drawing, um, if you wanted to be an architect or whatever it is. So uh, home economics was mostly um, just talking about and nutrition Baking, cooking, making menus, sewing, anything to do with the household. I was in this space where I knew how to bake. So I figured this was the best opportunity for me to Mm. go to this class. And then I graduated from high school, came to America in 97 um, and uh, went straight to Brooklyn uh, where all my family is. So finally reunited with the family. Things are great wanted to play basketball for a bit, but I wanted to go to college, actually, because I thought that's what you need to do when you get to America. So I was like, great, I want to play basketball. I want to go to college and do all of that. And then my mom, I was like a hot summer day in Brooklyn, went out to the park, playing basketball in the park. My mother was there watching me play. I was so nervous, had a terrible game. So then I sat on the bench next to her and I said, um, she said, hey, so do you think you're better than all of these kids that you're playing against? Um, I was like, well, no, there's some really good talent out here. Like, these guys are good. And she's like, well, if you can't tell me you're better than all of them, then this is not what you're going to do. You're going to find something else. So she enrolled me into the New York restaurant school. I, Yeah, that was the part of my life where... It kind of shift from because home economics was everything all together. Going to restaurant New York restaurant school, it was now what exactly do you want to do? Do you want to be a baker? Do you want to be a chocolatier? Do you want to be desserts? Do you want to like? Do you want to be a savory chef? Like then it turned into this whole thing which I never thought about. Um, so I just narrowed it down to pastry arts. I think my experience, it will be different because when I started at school, I am, think about a 17-year-old kid that just got to America from a third world country that just reunited, that just left everything that he knows and basically starting his life over again with not only trying to figure out family Trying to figure out my mother, trying to figure out new siblings, trying to make new friends, trying to learn the city. I'm and I started at school three months after I got to America. My whole vision and my like everything within me was, I there was so much distraction and so many things happening in my head, trying to fit into this culture. Speaking with a very strong Caribbean accent, make being made fun of, everything that you can think about being a new person, I was experiencing that while I was trying to figure out where I wanted to be and how I wanted to fit into this world. So it still wasn't even a career in my mind at that time. It was more of, it was just like, this is what I'm doing because I have to continue to learn. But I never thought about things in that way because I didn't even know, like, I, yeah, I, I could have barely made my way back home when I was going to school. Like, and that's a lot of layers in that, you know what I mean, in that room where I didn't even care what school, like it, at that point in my life, nothing else, I didn't know anything. Yeah, so that's
0: that's so interesting. I think one of the themes that keeps popping up is certainly of, of interest to me is this idea around um, the power of culinary school and using sort of your time training as your signal about yourself and the industry and sort of where you fit in. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your time training and sort of what that experience was like.
2: That time was just going through that. I was never um, like going to restaurants or even touch it we would go to like small restaurants you know what I mean like around the corner anything major no fine dining or anything like that it was just learning the city going to school learning more about pastry because it was fascinating while I was there I was in this space where you know they had all these different cultural you know examples and around people that you know people from Norway people from Japan that I've never ever met or spoken to before in my life to be in the same classroom and understanding their cultures and their boundaries and realizing that we're all humans and we're all you know what I mean but before you see those people on TV because again I used to see those people on TV I, I met them when I was 17 years old I never had an apple in my life I never had a strawberry in my life until I was like 17 years 18 years old so I was learning about everything while trying to figure out going through maturity and trying to figure out being a young man so my journey has just been different in that in that aspect
0: absolutely absolutely
2: so you graduate i'm assuming that during
0: during two years certainly immersing yourself in culture and sort of discovering yourself but there's also some element of that that must have sort of cemented that what is the 19 year old 20 year olds about thinking about pastry and possibility at
2: that point so at that time time comes to graduate i'm waiting because i'm like okay cool the first time I'm gonna get a chance to go into a restaurant is when I do my, uh, externship. So that's when you go into a restaurant and you work for free and you they clock your hours. I think we had to do like, um, twenty five hours a week working. You know the restaurant can pay you, but they can only pay you minimum wage at the time. So you just kind of go in uh, or sometimes they don't actually, some of them didn't pay. You just kind of did it for free.
0: You are just learning. You just sort of learning technique and sort of developing your craft. Then you landed the River Cafe, which is again at the time, and now too, arguably one of the best restaurants in the
2: city. And you end up there as your first job. It was crazy. But I think that, the 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 beauty in that in that journey and in that process is that I believe that the time that I took instead of planning for what my next and strategizing time I was taking I was learning about myself I was learning how to love how to trust how to carry myself how to speak how to eat with a knife and fork how to like, right. I was learning the basic fundamentals. That most people had already done already at 17 years old, I was pretty much starting my life over again. So it forced me to become more of a sponge than someone else that has already been immersed in that culture. And top on other things, my senses, I developed different senses in that in that time frame, if that makes any sense. But I I had to, you know, just from meeting somebody and looking at their body language and looking at how they speak and how they carry themselves, I had to gauge where this person land on that radar on how much I can communicate with them or if they even care about what I have to say because I didn't know. So I had to learn that quick. And especially being in New York, you have to learn a lot of things really fast. That, that was the time that I was planning and focusing more on how to be a better human being more than mm. how to be a better pastry chef like yes That's I right. took my work seriously and I I was excited about it but my goal and my life has always been bigger than that and yeah. let me just say this to be clear pastry and dessert is a vessel in which I use to get to the place that I want to be with anyone mm. right being in with how I came up in my upbringing uh, and being moving from house to house. I, I, I never had, I never felt or had that, that vibe of, of being important, right? If you're moving from house to house, you're like the help you're the, you're the other person. You're not the Mm -mm. person. So you have to obviously learn to protect yourself emotionally compartmentalize things and go through different obstacles which is all in my life story that you know that I probably haven't even expressed yet to others but you go through all of those things just basically surviving and then coming to America where I didn't have to survive anymore where it was okay now you're loved now you are the guy Mm -hmm. I had to focus on Focus on me before I was even thinking about what my career was, I had to make sure that I was okay.
0: That's a really beautiful way of thinking about your, your work. If we had a little bit more of that, um, so if people approach this work more like that, I think we have a very different industry. I would love it if we could talk a little bit about how you build ethos into your management style, your sort of the framework of your your businesses, who's creating the environment that is either healthy or not. It starts at at the top, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something particular about amazing people of color in positions of power, that they approach an ethos of ec- like inclusion, equity, what you bring to the table when you are building your own space that your experiences feeling like you you said it so beautifully like feeling unseen feeling feeling marginalized that 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 you create spaces that make sure nobody else in that space feels that way talk a little bit right. about those sort of principles when there's no blueprint like you you, you are yeah. creating an equitable space like what does that look
2: absolutely. like absolutely absolutely so first thing is you know, the reason why I wanted to make that jump into the ownership partner of my career was one, I I found my why. I found why did I get up every day and do what I do? And uh and I found that when I was working in Tucson with me and my business partner actually, because he was director of operations and I was the corporate pastry chef, and I I realized that I think that was the first time in my life that I saw that I want to do this forever. The, the passion that I had and the drive that I had the entire time of my career, people would assume that, and even I did at times, that this is what I'm going to do forever. But I didn't really know. I, I'm still living in this dream, yeah. you know what I mean? and and But I don't know what this end goal is. I really didn't know. I thought, I'm like, yeah, like everybody else, I want to open up my own place. That's what everybody says. That's the easy answer. But that's not the reality. And because some of us is going to work as line cooks until the day we die. And some of us yeah. is going to go on and work for so as a corporate chef for us foods or something and some of us is going to be personal chefs that's what's going to happen not everybody's going to open up their own restaurant so but you think that you are so finding my why and why i do what i do is why i decided to open up the restaurant because that's when i found out in my mind that i it wasn't about being the best pastry chef it was never about being the best pastry chef for me i've never Wanted to be, I use competition to get to the next point in my career, not to prove to anyone that I was better than them. Because I believe that I was already better, not than them, but I believe that I was better than where I was. I wanted to create food that don't just speak to what I can buy and how much money I can spend on it, but what actually impacts the environment. And what actually mm-hmm. makes change in the community by supporting local farmers and all of those things.
0: I want to first offer that your framework is actually unique. Just a sense of you have to create the space you want, not beholden to old models. And yeah. the rest of the the rest of the industry will catch up eventually. Tavel as a chef is just so fascinating to listen to because I think we see his work and his visibility and sort of discount the level of rigor and the level of commitment to creating space that he's put into building this restaurant group. He's not just executive pastry chef. As owner, as co-owner, he's the moral center of this brand and so it would be really easy for him to use his space and his platform and his ability um, to sort of promote his own work and to sort of be front facing but he really is sort of taking the opportunities that he's been afforded and he's worked so hard for throughout his career to kind of make a statement and to be impactful and to make the work he's doing now mission based mission driven work. Um, So it's just it's always brilliant to hear from folks who we think of and see as visible who have such a particular focus on the responsibility to this industry, to the, the, the teams that they manage and to the, the, the space that they create. Our next guest is Kamari Mick. Kamari was born in, in Pennsylvania. She trained early on all over Philadelphia. Um, and now she's the executive pastry chef of the Michelin-starred musket room. Um, I wanted to talk to Kamari because I think that we discount how well young people are using Instagram to leverage and promote themselves, and I think Kamari has made the case for how brilliant her work is and how craveable her pastries are by using her digital platform as sort of a, a portfolio and her calling card, and so she's been able to use social media to subvert a lot of the ways that we think we need to navigate careers to be successful and if COVID has taught us nothing else is that folks who have their own voice and clear platform are the ones most prepared to navigate hard times and so yeah Kamari is 100% a chef we should be paying attention to.
3: My name is Kamari Mok. I am the pastry chef at Musket Room, a one Michelin star restaurant. I have been in the industry for almost 10 years now. I graduated from the restaurant school at Walnut Hill College, uh, worked in Philadelphia for like almost five years and then went to Nantucket and then came to New York where I am now. Um, and I don't think I'm gonna leave anytime
0: soon. <laughs> just talk a little bit about those early days thinking of going into pastry and what the, what that sort of trajectory was like.
3: I actually was born and raised a little bit outside of Philly in this small town called Easton. It's about like an hour outside of Philly. Like you said, my dad is Jamaican. My mom was raised, born and raised in Brooklyn, but basically we were a traveling family. We went to Jamaica a, a lot, like at least twice a year throughout my childhood. And then it was just a sound, a sound mind when I knew I wanted to go to college. I knew I wanted to be nearby because we are very family oriented. Like, so I was going to go across the country. So it was just, like, it just made sense for me to go to Philly because I knew I wanted to cook. Because in when I was being raised around such amazing food, you, you know, like Jamaican food for my dad, and just honest, it's, it's more like Southern cooking from my mom. Like they're great cooks, but they cannot bake for their life. At <laughs> they just they just weren't sweet bakers. Like we would always buy like you know those um, Entenmann's cakes with like yep. the frosting. <laughs> We would always get those and like you know, uh, Chips Ahoy, like so you know that fatty filter, um, cook like cookies and stuff. We would get all of those. So it's just like one day I'm like, Mom, let's bake come on, I want to bake, I want to bake something. And because I was a chubby kid, you know. (laughs) So we just started baking together a little bit. And then, you know, all of a sudden, like, I'm like, okay, I'm tired of like making like Betty Crocker stuff, like, let's make it from scratch. And my mom's like, all right, you're doing too much. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I um, kind of started doing it on my own after that, because she's like, all right, this is like too much. And so I started baking by myself, and then I started selling the stuff I baked in school. I um, at first I wanted to be a forensic pathologist, and I told my parents that when I was in like sophomore sophomore year in high school, and they were like, "Are you serious?" My dad like sat me down and was like, "You can do. You're good at doing this, and you like doing this. So why might why not make money being?" a baker because you know what? People are always going to eat and he was 100% right.
0: I want to interject here because I feel like there's something really particular about the sort of parental influence on this, the only career choice in this work because you either had the parent who like your parents who were like mm, no we got to figure this out follow your passion and the other the sort of um, side of the coin and maybe it's generational but where they were afraid of and unsure of this choice as a viable option
3: i mean my parents were like head in for it i they've no doubt i honestly personally I didn't even see it as an option. I thought I wanted to be something else and then like cooking was gonna be a hobby for me. And I'm so glad that my parents said you can be a chef. Be a chef.
0: I love but- that. And there's something also in the in what you, you share where I like I really wanna sort of lift up because this is also this part where you're talking about um your your family were really good cooks, but there was like this sort of void where pastry was the thing you like the option you had you could show up and like shine in that way and like contribute something because nobody else wanted to do that part oh my god always like my mom like she so every
3: thanksgiving she would always make these sweet potato pies and they're good don't get me wrong like you know put some cool whip on it like they're 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 really good (laughs) reminds me of home but that's all we would have. So there was this one year, you know, pre-covid of course. We I made like a whole dessert smorgasbord, not one crumb was left. I made some apple tarts, some like lemon, I mean I think I made some like cheesecake, I think I made some like lemon bars. And my mom was like, "Um, you can't do this again. You're like outshining my sweet potato pie." <laughs>
0: So you are clearly nurtured in terms of your family's like buy into this choice, like they're more into it than you are, and you sort of are passionate but are like sort of slow to really see the possibility. Oh, yes. you sort of, I, I wonder about proximity to, to sort of training because your your parents sort of saying like this is a real thing you could really do this this thing. Your choice. Your choice of school. So I went
3: to this school. Um... The restaurant school at Walnut Hill College. And I got my associates in pastry. And then I was like, I want to learn more. So I got my bachelor's in pastry as well. So I have two degrees and three years to do it. (laughs) Um, But while in school, I worked at Morimoto. I worked at a macaron food truck. I also interned uh, while in school at uh, Zahav, which is in Israel. Mm, I don't know. Have yeah. you? Yes. Oh my uh, God. Yes. Very, very familiar. Yeah, that, yeah. that lamb shank, right?
0: <laughs> Girl, yo. <laughs> I love that you lifted up your school and this notion of ch- the choice being really particular. That you were able to get a bachelor's degree, that you were able to sort of be in city life, like Philadelphia, so work along time alongside your, your training. I would love if you talk a little bit about that sort of coming to New York, what possibility looks like in terms of upward mobility, like agency really, I'm sure being guided by lots of mentors or folks who you're looking up to or looking at getting to this current space.
3: I, I gotta admit, like working in New York for me was it was really, um, it was an easy start. So my first position was at uh, DB Bistro as the mm. sous chef directly out of Nantucket. And honestly, looking back, I was not ready for what they needed at that time. But I was there for a year and a half or so, and um, as the pastry sous chef, um, and it was. It was a nice ease into New York fine dining, but it was rough. I mean, we, so DB Bistro, for those of you who don't know, is a Daniel Blood restaurant and it's also located next to Broadway. What we were dealing with were tourists. Uh, we did prefixes for shows. So we always had the rush in the beginning and then we had a rush after after, you know, your normal showtime. And because we had the name Dana Balut uh, attached to the restaurant, obviously, it, we were we were very busy. And I was not originally ready for that. I was not ready to be a fine dining um fast, casual place at a a fast, casual place in New York is my first New York job, but Mm. I, I made it through, I made it work, I made it through, I pushed hard. And, you know, it, it made me a better chef in the end of the day.
0: Like you said, this is your first gig in New York. You sort of getting your feet wet. feel you know, mm-hmm. feel like you, you know, maybe felt a little overwhelmed, but definitely kind of getting your sea legs and really getting into it. Season and a half is about right. What are you thinking about in terms of possibilities at this point? Like, who are you looking at as like career goals? Or what are you thinking of in terms of my next theoretical move?
3: My next theoretical move was to work at a Michelin star restaurant. And um, i right people don't know because I normally don't tell people because I was only there for um like a month or so is when I went to work at 11 Madison Park and mm-hmm. I could not cut it. I was not made to work there it, for for a multitude of reasons. At that time I just wasn't right in the right mental space. Like I had just I literally left DB Bistro and then two days later went to go work there and I just I didn't like I I, it was not a smart move and I don't think it's a an effect on me I think it's an effect on one not everybody can do that and two we overwork cooks
0: yeah there's some place some ways in which we engage our careers professionally where sometimes it feels like the the name check is more important than the actual position. And so certainly 11 Madison Park industry-wide is respected. We know we look to be able to be able to sort of have gone through that experience it has, it informs your work certainly, but it also is something that I'm sure was a, a speculative sort of thing on your horizon, but it's a brave thing to have to sort of get this thing that seems wantable, seems like desirable to other people, to get it and to decide it's not for you and just sort of have the fortitude to say, I'm not just going to stay because it's the wantable thing. It's the sort of sexy thing. It's not serving me, so I can't do it.
3: I actually left. um, I gave a proper two weeks notice, but I left without having another job on, you know, ready to go, which is something I've never done before. So it was very like, it was a very scary time in my life. I took some time off. I took like a month or so off. And then I got a job at La Den. And one thing after EMP, like incited in myself like you're not going to take a job unless you do two stages like you have to see the kitchen mm. like, two different perspectives because i know when i went to EMP, i had like blinders on essentially like oh my god number one restaurant in the world like i yeah. need to work here you know like three michelin stars but like i still had that blinders on where i was being paid minimum wage so yeah. i to La Den, I did two stages and I I knew at that time for me like after that time that I took off it was okay yes it let's do let's do this like three Michelin star I can do this again I at this time I was doing only 10 hours a day which was much better than like a 13 hour shift 6 days a week <laughs> and I was being paid Appropriately, I was not being paid minimum wage. I was being paid above it. I felt valued. Like I, I felt a part of the team, and not to mention, like they were just so much kinder and more accepting, and and just more approachable than a lot of the cooks at EMP. And I, I don't know, yeah. maybe, it maybe it's the environment. It felt so much better, yeah. and I felt like I could breathe there, and I felt like I could m- make a mistake and not be like reprimanded to the point of tears you know there definitely were some hard times as you know most restaurants and most jobs have but um definitely. That a great, great experience post mm-hmm. that I went to go work under Thomas Keller at the tacker room in Hudson Yards which unfortunately is now closed which I, yeah. I too had great experiences there but I I definitely I mean there was a like oh uh, A terrible experience where the pastry chef actually called a porter a gorilla and the porter he's African and when I tell you he's African he's African when it happened I told him I was like you need to go to HR you know tell them exactly what happened and that like let them handle it because this is ridiculous and you know what's funny is because I was there when it happened and I was I looked at the pastry chef, and I was like, you can't call black people gorillas. First off, why do I have to tell you this? Secondly. <laughs> and then secondly, he looked at me and then he says, Um, oh, well, I should take your word for it then. And I'm just like, what what else stupid are you gonna say today, huh? You know? So he goes to HR, they don't, they pretty much don't do anything. And I guess like the pastry chef really didn't see anything wrong with it. And, you know, I ended up having to go to HR too because they needed the witness
0: statement. I find it interesting that you are talking about spaces that have HR because that's been a big sort of factor, the sort of structures that allow you to be able to speak up and have some degree of agency. Like some of these like, These restaurant groups that you think are so fancy don't even have HR. So, I mean, at the bare minimum, there was some mechanism for recourse for you, but it it sounds like the environment still sort of left you vulnerable in that way. But I would love if we could, like, talk through... COVID's effect on your career and what you see as next. Because I feel like COVID just sort of meant different things to different people. COVID actually
3: gave me like a boost, you know? Um, my career kinda like took off a little bit because of COVID. I did the Mason Yaki pop-up late uh, in fall, essentially, and it was a hit. I I not only made some money, but I um got a few names I, I got to meet a lot of people because of the mason yaku pop-up i did get the job musket room and we had a couple of other job offers as well
0: because of the of
2: mason course because
0: you fly yeah yeah the, yeah. Me, the me alone just i was like yes this i don't even need a taste of thing i know this girl has it the thoughtfulness and the combinations and also just the sort of eye towards subtlety was just, I don't know, it was brilliant. I wonder if you just talk a little bit about, like, what that, like, no more work right now. It's sort of, we have this, this sort of talk that everybody had, like, you know, sit you down, you know, city is closing down. We basically go home until further notice. What that, I mean, you what does that look like for you
3: At Musket Room, it was a conversation of we have this food truck now where we're allowed to do like more casual things. It is a One Michelin Star Mm -hmm. restaurant. So we have to have another avenue of revenue to be able to do, expand our horizons without compromising our integrity of being a One Michelin Star restaurant. So now that we have this food truck, they're like, okay, let's do pastries out of it. Let's do like cookies and, you know, all these quote unquote, simple things that can allow us to do more casual things and make a little bit more money and not compromise our and not our staff, not compromise our staff to um, exposure, you know, so you walk up and you take away, you know, we have tables out for people to sit down and eat if they want to eat. But for the most part, you walk up, you take away and that's that's it and that's where where i came into play that's how i got the job they saw my stuff i actually was selling donuts on instagram for a little bit i was delivering them myself and they they saw me on instagram would you be interested and i was like heck yeah i don't have a job but at that time tacrum officially closed too so i was just like right. i
0: do
3: you you know so and that's pretty much how i got um my position at musket room
0: if you could like leave us off with talking about your your approach, things are sort of in flux and you are sort of developing and building as the restaurant is able to sort of evolve into this new form of normal. But it's you're able to bring with this like sort of new job a lot of innovation, a lot of sort of creativity, which is natural to you. I would love it if you just talk a little bit about like how you approach your practices, have global influences and flavors.
3: Um, my approach is if I want to eat it, I'm going to make it. Essentially. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I'll start with the, um, the sticky toffee that I did at Mason Yaki pop-up. You know, I had to work around my dates that I, um, was allotted. I had fall dates for my pop-up. So figs are in season. So what am I going to do with figs? Um, when, and it's starting to get chilly, so it was like, okay, I need a warm-ish dessert. So how am I gonna do this? So that's how the sticky toffee with the figs. I don't know. Clay Clay's the one who shot the um the photos, and they came out gorgeous. Oh. I love ice cream, so pretty much every no every dessert had an ice cream on it. Um, so yeah. the the sticky toffee was a. Fig and date sticky toffee with date vinegar reduction and a date soy sauce ice cream, which that ice cream, I need to make it again, to be honest, because I just have dreams about it sometimes, you know, it's so good. And then I, the pavlova was a meringue, a vanilla meringue with whipped ricotta, pear, poached pears and pear sorbet. And then I actually had a vegan dessert, which was a vegan coconut panna cotta with a butternut squash ring and yeah. um, coconut chartreuse uh, sorbet, which also was delicious as well. That sh- I, first off, I love coconut and chartreuse together, one of my favorite pro- profiles. Um, uh-huh. Or like herbaceous and medicinal yeah. chartreuse with like creamy coconut, delicious. And then I had, which uh, surprisingly was super popular, was the ginger molasses cookie ice cream sandwich with date ice cream in the middle.
0: Yeah. Of course yeah. it was. It sounds amazing. Like it's this is it's all the fall flavors you want in one bite, like in one sort of yes. Absolutely. It was it was a
3: great time and the pop-up gave me perspective of like, you know, when you're working in a restaurant, you have to do obviously food that fits that restaurant. So you're always in mm. some but with pop ups, you are you are free to do whatever the whatever you want to do you know like it, that is you this is you and this is what you want to do and this is the stuff that you can create and what you want to feed the people you know and mm-hmm. so
0: that's why I love pop-ups oh, I love that I love that you are so young but so focused and I love that you are finding room to sort of Come into the full the fullness of your create creative potential, and that you know as, as the world opens back up and things kind of settle. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you what you do with room. It's gonna be dope. Thank you so much. So our Origin Stories episode is finished and. I think the origin stories are so important. I think that they give us a glimpse into the years of dedication and personal sacrifices um, behind the desserts that we love. Our guests have all been so generous, sharing their stories, telling us about the clear and, and powerful support system that helped them to create clear, technical, aesthetic identities for themselves. And I think that while they've each faced their own set of challenges throughout their careers, they managed to use their respective platforms to redefine themselves and identity within our industry. One of the main reasons we wanted to do this series is because I think it would be so easy to disregard the power of desserts as frivolous or unhealthy distractions, especially in this time as serious as COVID-19. But I think if this time has taught us nothing else, it's shown us that We should cherish the small pleasures and honor the creative people bringing us joy. So I just wanna say a special thank you to Erica Dupree, to Val Bristol-Joseph and Kamari Mick for sharing themselves so beautifully with us on this first episode of Black Dessert. We are bi-weekly podcast, so we'll be back um, in two weeks with episode two. Black Desserts is a special Black Food Folk series presented by Clay Williams and Colleen Vincent, with support from Amber Mayfield and Melandra Hasick, produced by the brilliant creative team at weststone Media.